This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I'm also the public relations officer of the United National Congress, the official opposition party in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Today, my guest is Caldo Casla, author of the book Spain and Its Achilles Heels, The Strong Foundations of a Country's Weaknesses published by Roman and Littlefield in 2021, out now in hardcover and on Kindle. Welcome, Caldo. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Kirk. Yes, I, I look forward to it. Let me make sure I did pronounce your name correctly, did I? I, yes, I hope you did. I did. Yes, Excellent. you did. Well done. <laughs> right. So we like to start off um, our discussions with the author giving our audience a background about yourself and particularly in relation to the subject of this book. So can you do so, please? Sure, sure. Um, so I'm, I'm a lecturer in international law and international politics, and I'm the director of the Human Rights Center Clinic at the University of Essex in the UK. I am also uh, a citizen of Spain. I am a national of Spain, and that's where I was born, uh, where I grew up the first 23 years of my life, more or less, and, and sometime later as well, uh, in particular in the Basque country, in the in the north of Spain, the border mm. with, with France. Um, professionally, I have always worked uh, on social rights issues, issues related to housing, health, education, uh, social security, from both an academic perspective, but also as a, as a practitioner and always going beyond the law. I'm very, I'm very interested in how to make these, uh, these social rights meaningful in, in practice. Uh, I worked for the National Human Rights Institution of the Basque Country, the Parliament of the Basque Country. I was the chief of staff for two and a half years um, or 10 years ago. And mm. later on, I, I, I was a researcher on social rights issues for Amnesty International in Spain, in particular on housing health and education. I used to run a small uh, NGO, uh, human rights NGO in England, working also on social rights. And uh, for the last two years, I am a, a full-time academic at the University of Essex, uh, uh, still working on the intersection between law and politics mm. and social rights. Oh, wow. That's uh, really fascinating. Um, that that's a good background to know. So, um, so let me ask you: How did you become interested in the foundations of Spanish politics? I mean, obviously, you are involved practically 
in in uh, Spanish politics. Uh, what was there sort of any sort of event or, or something that made you say, you know what, we, um, I, uh, you know, I, I really need to check to to move away from the the normal discourse of Spanish politics. Uh, was there any sort of turning point or anything like that? Um, I'm, I'm not sure there was a turning point as such. There was not. Uh, I don't think there was an epiphany as such. But um, mm-hmm. but this is a very personal project for me. So I tried to combine um, academic research and policy analysis with uh, personal um, reflection uh, as well. So I include in the book. I include a lot of um, um, lived experience of my own and and others. Uh, I believe. Uh, profoundly in uh, in what Miguel de Unamuno, a, a Spanish philosopher for about a hundred years ago, used to call the intrahistory. So this exercise of, of of telling our history through this, the lived experience, the anonymous people, the, the 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 people that never appear in the recorded official uh, uh, recorded history, and and I tried to combine a little bit of reflection about. Um, um, you know, issues related to the nation and the nations, issues related to how Spaniards tell their own history, the 20th century history, issues about how the politics of left and right uh, work in relation to the welfare state through um, my own um, reflections, working with, with, with people in the, in the public policy sector. Uh, working with people in the charity sector, but also my own family. Uh, so it was interesting to discover a number of things that had to do with my my grandfather, with my sister, with a cousin of my uh, of my uh, uh, grandfather who I never met and who had a, 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 an interesting story to tell about his own experience during the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. So for me, this was a very profoundly personal exercise, but it was also um, an academic exercise, and in particular in the domain of comparative politics, which is a field that I, 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 I work on in combination with the law. So in comparative politics, uh, there is this... Um, uh, usual um, uh, approach uh, that comes from John Stuart Mill of the most similar system design or the most dissimilar system design when we talk about small n comparative analysis, when we try to compare countries that either look alike and have uh, are very different outcomes or are very different but have similar outcomes. And then in, in addition to this um, uh, sort of small end comparative analysis, we, we have the large end comparative analysis, but we have the single case studies. And I've always been fascinated by how much we can um, generalize, um, how much we can transfer or replicate from the knowledge we acquire from single case studies, because there are very there are features that are quite unique, quite special, quite peculiar of, uh, of, of single case studies. And I wanted to reflect about this. I wanted to reflect about the issues, the frailties, the weaknesses of a country that may not make that much sense outside that country, that may be taken for granted by people who are trying to compare that one country with another on, on, on political or policy issues that may appear comparable, that when, but when one goes underneath, can observe that actually there are frailties that are not really, um, that should not be taken for granted. Frailties that actually define what is possible and what is desirable in that particular country. So that's that's precisely what I wanted to do. I wanted to undercover and unearth some, some of those frailties without which I believe Spanish politics cannot be comprehended. 
you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy uh, with your approach um, on so many levels. Um, uh, you know, I'm as I indicated before we started, I'm not a, a, a an expert uh, or specialist by any means on Spanish politics. Um, but you know, but you know, I am sort of interested in, in in a lot of these things, and certainly in in your approach. And there there are aspects, however, like the Spanish Civil War. I'm especially since at at one point in my youth, I, I was an anarchist and part of an anarchist collective. And so, you know, <laughs> you. So, yeah, so um, you know, so so there, there was this whole romanticism about about wow, there was a place where where it was you know working out for a little while. Um, sure. And sure. so there, there's that whole sort of a, you know romantic look back at, mm. at that and really you know fascination with with really what happened and then of course orwell and his involvement and in, uh, i mean he, mm -hmm. so i i'm comparative politics yeah uh, um uh, because my own specialty is on trinidad and tobago and and like you it's a passion project it's a personal project and 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 the idea of of the special case single case um and the insights and and the peculiarities uh, it it is uh, re it's it's something I can really really sympathize with, and understand, um, and so I look forward to to um, continuing the conversation along these lines. So let me start off then, just by with your title. Um, uh, tell me what are you referring to in your title? Strong foundations of a country's weaknesses, and why is it important? Um, I, I, to answer that question, I think the first thing I will do is I will, I will look uh, at another country, uh, at the US. There was a, an interesting piece of research by, by Pew Research in August, uh, August 2020, before the uh, last presidential elections between Trump and Biden. And one of the findings of that, of that uh, analysis was that um, Trump and Biden supporters uh, one of the things that were that they differed the most about was about uh, um, the acknowledgement um, about what about the meaning of the acknowledgement of the nation's historical flaws, um, racism, slavery, and so on. So for for it seems that for Trump supporters, uh, uh, acknowledging some of these questions, looking back at history with a critical eye, was an expression of weakness. While for many Biden supporters. Uh, it was a necessary thing to do in order to strengthen the foundations of the country. And I found that interesting. You know, one of the, it seems to be one of the deepest uh, political cleavage of that particular historical conjuncture uh, of the of the 2020s and perhaps also uh, to this day. The extent to which acknowledging one one's um, um, vulnerabilities or weaknesses is a path to strengthen the future of your country or a path to uh, to weaken the foundations of your own country, and I think that lesson uh, is 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 a, is a very important lesson. It's a significant one for political debates in this in this day and age. Not only in the U.S., not only in Spain, but in other countries as well. When I use the expression Achilles' heels, I am using it as a metaphor. Um, uh, as a metaphor of 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 a very of I, th I think it's a useful metaphor because it's a, it's a very human feature the Achilles Hill. Uh, after all, is is one of the essential uh, elements of uh, of our evolutionary process. Without Achilles Hills, humans 
will be primates, wouldn't be wouldn't be humans. It's one of the things that distinguish that distinguish us from from primates. Uh, I think Achilles heels exist uh, in all countries, uh, and I believe Achilles heels are not necessarily unique. Uh, so the, 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 the examples uh, and the issues I cover in my book are not unique to Spain, but I think they define their characteristic in Spain. They are quite um, um, uh, important and foundational um, uh, structural conditions that could go unnoticed, could be taken for granted, uh, could be decontextualized. Uh, and when I say that uh, they could be taken for granted, I don't mean, I don't mean that they are ignored. Uh, so the issues that I cover in the book are widely discussed from different political and ideological perspectives by people who look at Spanish politics. But but they could be taken for granted in the sense that either when you look from the outside, you may not be able to grasp the foundational nature of these issues, or uh, or when you are within the country, you may assume that um, that these things are just uh, uh, um, rules of the game without which. Oh, that one needs to accept when dealing with when when dealing with political with political debates in Spain. So we, we we may discuss this in greater detail. But one of the examples, one of the issues that I think is de- is defining of Spanish politics uh, has been for for decades is the debate about the nation. How many nations there are in Spain? Is it just one or is it several? If it is several, how many of them? Um, this is certainly something that has not gone unnoticed to anyone who looks at Spain, but for those who look at it from within the country, it may be taken for granted as something that is 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 peculiar, is is singular of Spain. But in fact, these sort of debates happen in other countries as well. It's quite common to see these sort of debates in Spain. I think the disagreement about the nation and the nations is not is not per se a vulnerability. The way we deal with that disagreement may be a form of, of, of vulnerability. The questions that I try to explore in this book are, are questions that are, um, uh, are very politically timely, I think, things that have been happening the last uh, few years. So, for instance, why was uh, Franco exhumed from the Valley of the Fallen in late 19, uh, 2019? So why, why was the dictator exhumed from a, from a, a fascist mausoleum that still exists in the mountains of, of Madrid? And why did it happen uh, in 2019, where he died in 1975. So why why was he exhumed? Why was he there in, in the first place? Why did Catalonia uh, erupt all of a sudden in October 2017? And all of a sudden, it looks as if Catalonia was going to break apart from the rest of Spain. Why is it, for those who follow Spanish politics, why is it that, that you don't hear so much about the Basque country anymore? Which seemed to be the region that was most likely to achieve independence, or at least fighting for independence, much more uh, vocally. Uh, why did Podemos, the the, the far left party, uh, emerge and gain so much momentum in 2014? And why did it lose half of that momentum and half of the votes within five years? Uh, and why is it, for, perhaps, why is it that a country that is so uh, has such a Catholic majority society? Why why is it considered one of the most LGBT friendly countries? In the world, um, I, I think answering these questions requires looking critically into uh, uh, taking a look into the mirror, taking a look at the mirror with no with no fear. Uh, I think one needs to be very strong to acknowledge one's uh, vulnerabilities and weaknesses. We should not forget that, after all, Achilles was in fact the strongest man of of his of his generation. Um, I think taking 
taking, acknowledging uh, the collective uh, vulnerabilities, the Achilles Hills is about um, is about uh, accepting um, the 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 features of one's society, but not not being conformist, not being passive or, or resigned. It's about accepting the reality as it is, but also taking ownership and changing what is what is possible, what can be what can be changed. Uh, there is there is one one playwright uh, that I that I like uh, Ramon Valleinclan from 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 the early twentieth century and and he wrote he wrote this play uh, Bohemian Lights in in the nineteen twenties and towards this the end of the play Valleinclan uh, uh, makes the main character Max Estrella say the distortion uh, uh, he making an appeal for distortion and uh, in, in the way we 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 we, we Talk about society, and and he said, Max Estrella said that the most beautiful images on a concave mirror are absurd, and I think it, it requires a lot of uh, bravery to take a concave mirror and to look at oneself, and that's when we really identify the true heroes. Yes, yes, I I have a, a lot of sympathy with that. I mean, um, uh, yeah, on as I said before, on so many levels. Like for instance, my own book on Trinidad and Tobago, I. I I call it uh, the political history of Trinidad and Tobago. I call it politics in a half-made society. And that um, has shaken up, (laughs) that shook up a lot of people because, um, you know, they found it so, you know, critical and, and, um, you know, not not following the kind of, uh, uh, you know, third world nationalist sort of line and, and, you know, um, because it it, it was, uh, you know, inherently self-critical, um, which was, uh, you know, not the stance you, you're kind of supposed to take. So, so I can I can see that when when you are highlighting the country's weaknesses, that you know it, it can um, rankle certain um, political senses and and I suppose nationalistic uh, sensitivities mm-hmm. in Spain as well. Yeah, yeah. and I, I took that um, phrase "half-made society" from V.S. Naipaul. Our um, great uh, author, who is very critical of of and self-critical, and he, in fact, what one of his uh, in 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 one of his um, analyses of Trinidad and Tobago, um, he he mentions or- Ortega y Gasset. Um, right. Yes, you know, from Spain, mm-hmm. a, a, a very interesting insight about um, you know or, uh, Ortega y Gasset was talking about um, how. People just don't come together for the sake of coming together. They they come together to do something, and and he was taking that insight of, about all the divisions in uh, in our own society. So, and 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 I can I I think um, I I can also sympathize with their perspective there that it, it's it's almost anthropological in in a sense, or maybe even literary. You know, you're looking for, um, you're looking at the importance of of what an anthropology they call an emic perspective, like an insider's perspective, mm-hmm. and and seeing that as as essential to understanding the politics, and and it can't just be these generic categories that are you know universal and and so-called scientific that you just um you know or they have one policy here or or one type of um uh observable phenomenon here and then we we do some kind of mathematical formula and graph it and you plot all these countries and xyz um i i think it's it's kind of a uh I don't know if rebellion is a word, but 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 certainly a, an implicit critique of that sort of approach. Am I right? Yeah, I think you could say that. It's interesting because at, at the same time, all, all my life I've been working 
uh, on human rights issues, which if human rights are something, they are meant to be universal, right? They are meant to mm-hmm. be for everyone, you know, irrespective of the differences we may have from one country to another, from one uh, religion to another, from one uh, uh, national community or, or, or sex to another. These differences should not matter when it comes to human rights. And yet, um, I am also very much of the of the of the opinion that we need in order to to make full sense of the meaning of rights and how we understand rights. We need to get down to the level of political community. We need to get close to where people are and and get close to the reality of people on the ground. That's why one of the uh, you know apart from this book, one of the projects I, I spend a lot of time on is this is a project called Human Rights Local where I try to um, find ways of uh, articulating these ideas in a way that makes sense for people uh, where in, in, in the local communities. And, and that may be very different from Trinidad and Tobago uh, to, uh, to, uh, to East London, where I live. And it is mm-hmm. also different from between East London and, and, and San Sebastian, my hometown in, in the north of Spain. And it is indeed different between East London and Colchester, where the University of Essex is based, only 60 miles or 100 kilometers away from, 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 from East London. Because, these, different, because these, these nuances matter because they are defined by the people on the ground. So um, part of the, my own intellectual reflections about these issues are very much about the conflicts between universal aspirations that are desirable and that I believe in, but at the same time the understanding that political communities and social communities are contingent and are 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 shaped by the reality on the ground much more much more closer to people's homes, to people's to place, to the to, to the location where they are. Uh, there, there is a conservative uh, uh, intellectual, I guess is 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 the name uh, in, in, in England at the moment, who, who recently wrote that one of the, he wrote a book to argue that the main political cleavage of our time in the UK, and I think he, 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 would, he would say also in other, in other countries, um, David Guhar is his name, is, is the, the fight between the uh, anywheres and the somewheres. Mm-hmm. You know, the anywheres yep. being the cosmopolitans, the ones who don't care where they are, because right. they believe about wonderful ideas and 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 borders and nations and culture don't matter to them. They are they are cosmopolitan in their view of the world in the cosmovision. And the somewheres are the ones for whom their identity is very much dependent on the on the place where they are. And they they will refuse to move to another place because their their comfort zone and the location is very important for them. Well, I one of the reasons why I work so much on the localization of human rights, and one of the reasons why I wrote this book on Spanish politics is because I refuse to accept this dichotomy, and mm-hmm. I think we need to challenge it. And I think it is possible to find ways of making sense of universal aspirations in a way that that is is more sensitive to people's realities on the ground. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. It reminds me of a sort of literary insight. Um, from C.L.R. Jane, where he talks about um, one approaches the universal and, and what one gets closer to the universal, the more uh, particular you get. So like, so like in art, the, 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 the more individual and idiosyncratic and, and particular you get is actually the more universal you, you become because, um, you, because we realize in everybody's individual struggles, the, um, the sort of universal lessons. And, and, and I was wondering 
if if you've come across in in your own um, thinking and writing in that sense that for instance there might be certain ideas certain loyalties certain phrases certain habits or, or something uh, among you know um, different sections of of the spanish population that outsiders you know can really misinterpret because they don't understand the emic perspective like how can you you know so you know how how can you have a picture of franco in your um you know <laughs> you know in, in your your living room or something are you a fascist do you do you, do you want to kill uh, I, I don't know is, is there something like that um uh where well, are there important things like that where where uh an outsider not understanding the the full context uh, can perhaps have a, a, a you know terrible misjudgments about um, uh, about I suppose the, the people's intentions and uh, etc. Uh, I I I think there are a few and 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 I think in in, in the book I I I, I talk about. Sp- some of them, I think, um, uh, there are two that I think are quite important and may be misinterpreted by someone reading them from the outside. One of them is the concept and the word nationality. Um, so nationality in English and indeed in Spanish as well means the condition of being a member of a political community that happens to be a nation, right? So you are mm-hmm. a national of Trinidad Tobago because you are from that country. You are a member of that political community. You hold a passport from that country. And I will say the same about Spain. If I am a national of Spain, I hold Spanish nationality. And that's this, that's that's how it is in English language and indeed in Spanish as well. But Spanish constitution, in addition to this particular definition, has another one. Uh, Spanish constitution from 1978 says that Spain is a nation, and it says that it's a nation that is um, uh, constituted by a number of nationalities and regions. So it uses Mm. the word nationality to refer to what seems to be some regions that have some sort of special character. But it doesn't say which regions they have a special character. Uh, It doesn't make a list. (laughs) And, and 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 it doesn't say whether it matters. So it doesn't it, it doesn't it doesn't tell you which ones they are, and it doesn't tell you what difference it makes in practice. Right. So it's it, one of those expressions of uh, strategic ambiguity of the drafters yeah. of the constitution <laughs> in the nineteen seventies, um, and it was a way of uh, of acknowledging that some um, some regions within Spain were very keen to have a, a lot of uh, autonomy and and uh, were had a strong impetus for self determination in the nineteen seventies. While others know so much, um, uh, so it was a way of recognizing discursively uh, with uh, with these with these words uh, that there were differences in in these regards. But again, it was it was it was uh, it was left to the legislator and to the future legislators of the different regions and nationalities to identify uh, which ones were regions and which ones were nationalities. One one funny feature of this is that now, you know, 40 years later, more than 40 years later, if one looks at the uh, status of autonomy, status of self-government of each one of the 17 regions and nationalities, which is you know, there are 17 regions in total. Um, if, if one looks at the status of, of, of self-government, uh, there is no a single one that says about themselves that they are a region. So all of them say that either they are nationalities or they have their communities with, with a national uh, identity 
or they have they are regions with historical significance, but no region defines itself as simply as a region. I think right. it's quite an interesting so, feature. It, it, so, <laughs> so, so, so the region, so the regions that say they have a, a national identity, they they mean. They, they don't mean Spanish. They mean a subnational, identity different. Yeah, that that's like I mean I I I, uh, I appreciate that that sort of uh, insight. I, I am uh, I I always um, think those things are important. Like in Canada, for example, um, the way Quebec refers to its provincial. Um, institutions as national institutions, you know, whereas the rest of the, the other Canadian provinces say, you know, the province of Ontario, but uh, in Quebec they say, you know, it's national, and yeah. it's and and also you know like the terminology, it's like the United States too, right? Uh, it's very um, uh, peculiar mm-hmm. the way uh, the term state is used in the United States. Like, so most people outside of the, the United States, you know, think of the state as, you know, the nation in a sense. Yeah. Whereas in the United States, it's, you know, a, a, a subunit. And, and the idea of the state um, is not, a, it's, it's a kind of weird concept for Americans uh, you know, to think uh, of the, the federal state as the state. Yeah, I, I would say actually in Spain, the logic nation versus state would be the opposite to the American one. Because in the, mm-hmm. in, in the U.S., the state is Texas and the nation is the U.S., while in yeah. Spain, the state is Spain. And then within some regions, there is an important part of the population who will say the nation is Catalonia and right. the state is Spain, or the nation mm-hmm. is the Basque Country and the, na- and, and the state is Spain. So there is, there is fundamental agreement that there is one single state, which is Spain. I think we're, we're in agreement about that. But mm-hmm. how many nations there are within that one state is unclear. <laughs> Right. Very interesting. Very interesting. Right. So, um, you know, and, and I, I like, um, I, I, again, I have a lot of sympathy with, with the way you, you introduce the four Achilles heels in your book. You know, you, you talk about like the civil war as such an easy explanation for foreigners and outsiders to, to eventually frame every question. It's just like, like I, I understand that instinctively, like from Trinidad and Tobago, uh, everyone eventually goes down to race and just makes everything about race when it's really, you know, uh, yes, it's going to touch everything but it's not uh, fundamentally about that and you know when you talk about uh and 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 so um as i understand it in your book um you know the these four achilles heels then uh you know it's it's to rise above the easy simplistic um understandings uh you know the the boxes that the international you know, community who are, you know, probably very ignorant about, you know, some of the details which you're, you're highlighting in your book. And as you said, it's like the number of nations, it's the way the past is dealt with, the, the structural underdevelopment of social protection, the Catholic Church and national identity. Um, you know, uh, without, you know, going through in detail each, each of these um, Achilles heels, but c- can you sort of illustrate... Um, you know some of these, like um, uh, and 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 how this um, helps us understand um, Spanish politics much better. Like how these uh, four Achilles heels you've talked about. So I mean, we can go one by one, just you know, little examples if you want to do that. Sure, happy to, happy to. Um, the the first thing I will say is that the title of the book is 
Spain and its Achilles heels the strong foundations of a country's of a country's weaknesses. But uh, for a time, I pondered the possibility of of calling it. Uh, uh, call, call in, uh, using as a title for the book uh, Spain Beyond Franco and Catalonia uh, because if, if, if one looks at uh, superficially international media coverage of Spanish politics um, chances are that you will find whatever the topic you will find a reference to either Franco or Catalonia <laughs> right exactly <laughs> maybe may be like race for Trinidad and Tobago that's and exactly it yeah. apologies but I'm, I am I am truly ignorant about politics that's in fine Trinidad that's Tobago, fine but, but yeah. based on what you're telling me that seems to be the case so mm-hmm. I, I mean just as a, as a as an exercise I will encourage uh, our 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 listeners to go to the New York Times and Google uh, or look for the in the search function to, to look for uh, Spain and, and see what the New York Times says about Spain and, and you know, read a, a, a random article from the New York Times about Spain and, and then look for the word Franco or for the word That's Catalonia right. and chances are it will be there. It will be there. Exactly. I totally understand. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, so, yes, in the book I explore, I, 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 after presenting this idea of Achilles Hills as um as an analytical tool for political analysis, which I think applies to Spain, but as I said, I think it could apply to other countries as well. After doing that, I I go deep into four four chapters, each one of them as one of the Achilles heels. So the Achilles heels of a uh, of a dancing couple, so two people dancing, and each one of them with 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 two Achilles heels. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I say at the, in the introduction of the book, I admit that these are not the only four possible uh, structural weaknesses of the country. So I think there could be more. And in fact, in, in conversations with, with colleagues and with uh, people whose opinion I respect a lot and also in, in events in preparation of the book, it, some, of the, um, uh, some of the possible weaknesses were presented to me and I think they deserve a lot of attention. Um, so I don't think the four I cover are exclusive or are the only possible ones, but there they, they could, could be some more. And I, I acknowledge yeah. this in the introduction. That's like the, the empire and women's right, rights yeah. and immigration. Yeah. All right. The, 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 yeah. The, these four, I think, I think they have some merits uh, to some extent. Um, uh, I mean, the, the issue of empire and colonialism, former colonialism, as, as we know, the Spanish empire ended uh, uh, by and large much earlier than the British and the French one. So, so it's a much more uh, uh, distant phenomenon yeah, in history. We were a former Spanish colony okay. and, and our capital is Port of Spain. So, yes. <laughs> okay. so, 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 so correct. So it's, it's part of, the, of what defines uh, the history, not only of Spain, but also of the former colonies. But it's, it's probably less uh, present or present in a different way than 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 it is certainly in the UK where I am and and it is in France. Having said that, I think it, colonialism and, and empire has shaped the way um, Spanish nation, the notion of a Spanish nation, was constructed in the nineteenth century. But yes, the the, the four the four. Um, uh, Achilles heels I cover in the book are um, the first one is the stubbornness uh, in the disagreement about the number of nations in Spain, uh, not only the number but the, the the type of nations or the the quality of nations. So the the I think the majority view in the majority of Spain is that Spain is a single nation, and that was the view also during the uh, Franco's dictatorship in the between 1930s and 70s, but also during the democracy. Uh, if you asked uh, 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 you know, uh, a random selection of Spaniards from different regions, they will, most of them would agree that Spain is a, a collection of, uh, sorry, a single nation. However, within some of these uh, regions or nationalities, 
there is strong sentiments that uh, the, the nationality itself is a nation. And that's certainly the case in Catalonia, in the Basque Country, in both of these uh, territories, it is the majority view. And in, in other regions of nationalities, it is also strongly held view that the region itself is the nation and Spain is a collection of several of several nations. Um, so something I do in the book is try to, I, I mean, the first thing I will say is that this disagreement is not a problem, in my opinion. It, it could be turned into a, into a, into richness. It could be turned into something that add, adds value and adds interest to the notion of the country, uh, to make it to make it more diverse, to make it more plural, to make it more uh, 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 you know institutionally institutionally. Um, 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 you know, productive because it could encourage different regions and nations to learn from each other in the way they handle their, their politics and their policies. So I think the disagreement per se is a limitation or a weakness. I think the way Spanish politicians and Spanish media and Spanish society has dealt with this disagreement is, is what can turn uh, into very ugly, ugly, nasty business. Um, I take the view uh, following... Um, you know, people like Benedict Anderson and, and Eric Hobsbawm and so on, the nationalism comes before nations. Uh, the, the, the nations don't make states uh, and and the nations don't make states and, 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 and ideology of and the ideology of nationalism. But it's the other way around. The ideology comes first and then it, the, from the ideology of nationalism is when, where we construct the idea of us as citizens of a certain of a certain nation. In the European context, nationalism is a product of the 19th century. Uh, so I think Spain as, an, as a nation is also con- a construct, a, a political construct, an ideological construct of the 19th century. However, if you ask uh, right-wing um, commentators and politicians in Spain, they will, is- they will quickly uh, make the point that Spain is the oldest nation in Europe because it is at least 500 years old. And when they say 500 years old, they refer to the marriage of the Catholic monarchs, uh, King Fernando and, and Queen Elizabeth from Aragon and, and Castilla, who got married in 1476, and then they expelled the Moors in, in 1492. They commissioned uh, Columbus's travels to the Americas, uh, who also arrived in 1492, and then expelled, expelled the Jews in 1492, and then Ferdinand conquered Navarra in 1512. So they referred to that period between 1476 and 1512, more or less, as the foundation of the Spanish nation. I think it is simply ridiculous. I don't think uh, there were nations in the 16th century or 15th century uh, in a way that uh, accommodate what we should understand um, as, a, as a political community, democratic political community in this day and age. Um, but the, the Spanish nation emerged as a political construct in the 19th century. It could have been a, a liberal and enlightened uh, project, and indeed it was, uh, and I covered this a little bit in the historical review of the chapter uh, in the first few decades of the 19th century uh, uh, with the with the with the constitution of Cadiz of 1812 and and some liberal movements in 1820s it could have been nationalism Spanish nationalism could have been an attempt to turn Spain into a liberal society um, but towards the second half of the 19th century there was some sort of uh, alignment, strategic alignment between conservative politics and, and, and reactionary politics, and on the one hand, and including the church, the Catholic church, and the construction of uh, the idea of the Spanish nation as a, as a single entity that should include all, all Spaniards. In parallel, 
certain powerful um, uh, bourgeoisie in in Barcelona and political actors in the Basque Country created a parallel imagined community, to quote Benedict Anderson, claiming that Spain was not the nation, but it was rather Catalonia was the actual nation and the Basque Country was the actual nation, referring to strong cultural and historical roots. So I'm not denying that each one of these claims have strong historical foundation, but the construction of the political um, uh, entity uh, on top of these historical foundations is an ideological construct of the 19th century. It was a conflict of legitimacies uh, between those who wanted a Spanish nation and those who wanted uh, at the very least a combination of several uh, several nations. There were attempts to to merge. Could, could I ask? Yeah. Could, could, could I ask you something about, in particular, the uh, the, the claim of the the ancientness uh, or, or the um, you know the long historicity of of the Spanish uh, nation in, in terms of the empire? I mean, we call it today the Spanish Empire, um, but what was it called in in you know the 16th century? Did, did, was it called the Spanish Empire, or, or is that a sort of a, a modern phrase we use? Um, do, do you know what the term, the contemporary term for the empire was, or was it just the empire? The, uh, um, I mean, I, I think they would probably refer to the monarchy as the institutional figure, the monarchy. Uh, right. But, I, but, uh, but the, the, there was there was this uh, expression used in the Philip II's uh, uh, times, so mid seventeenth century, who said that the, set, the, the sun doesn't set on our empire. Which right. was also used, I know, by the Victorian, the British, uh, yeah, the British in, in Victoria later on. But Spaniards used the same expression at the same time. So uh, I, th- I think uh, certainly the expression "empire" was used was part of the of the because of when, the when the Pope um, the, the Treaty of what is it? I, I can't pronounce the name. Torse, uh, <laughs> but, oh, the, but but the, oh, the, the, the treaty. Yes, yes, yes. When when um, the Pope divided. Um, uh, the new world between um, uh, Spain and Portugal. So, what what was the term the, the Pope used? Was it Spain? What did the term España um, was it used at that time, or was it uh, the, you know the, the the kingdom of of Ferdinand and Isabella or what? That's a good question. I mean, I I'm not sure yeah, whether that's okay. the, the, the that's treaty okay. as such. Yeah. The, uh, we we not to, we need to look to yeah look yeah because that that, that would either uh, strengthen or undermine their claim. It it, it just came to my mind. Just now, but the, I mean, you, you the, can go on. The, the word Spain. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm not claiming that the word Spain is an invention of the 19th century. It had been there much earlier than that. Uh, so it, it, the word Spain was used way before the 19th century, uh, definitely. What I mm-hmm. what I will, what I will doubt, and uh, and I'm, I'm you know I'm not making an original point here. Uh, but um, you know, there's a there's a there's a wonderful book by one historian called Jose Álvarez Junco. He wrote a book called Mater Dolorosa. It's in Spanish, but also it was translated in English and published by Oxford University Press in the year 2000. And, and he articulates, and, and other historians as well, he, they, they show how, despite the use of the words before the 19th century, the use of the word Spain as a nation as a political uh, entity that is unified and where the members should be in control of their own destiny is a product of the 19th century, as was the case in most of Europe uh, for their mm-hmm. other for the other nations. So that's that's the that's the confines of the argument I'm making. Obviously, the right. words Spain existed way way before. Um, 
so but the 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 uh, up until up until uh, up until the republic so in the 1930s uh, so mm-hmm. for the previous 60 years or so there was this conflict of legitimacy between those who argued that Spain had to be a single nation and those who argued that it was a, a collection of different of different nations and then we had a dictatorship uh, right-wing, conservative, uh, authoritarian dictatorship led by General Francisco Franco between 1939 and 1975. And he tried to settle this debate by saying Spain is just is one, is great, and is free. It's a single nation run from Madrid from the center. Um, uh, when the dictatorship ended, when Franco died in November 1975, and Spain turned towards democracy in late 1970s, there, there was a need to accommodate because obviously Franco had tried to settle the debate, but he, he hadn't managed to settle the debate. There was still a fundamental disagreement about what was Spain about, you know, in, in terms mm-hmm. of in terms of in terms of the idea of, of the nation. So they looked what uh, uh, constitutional is called a constitutional fitting. They look for a way of accommodating. Uh, this uh, this ambiguity, this disagreement, this conflict of, of, of legitimacies. And they, they found out this way in Article 2 of the Constitution of, of, of playing with the words nationality, uh, as I said earlier, nationality and regions. They didn't make up the words. The word had been part of Spanish political debate for 100 years or so, since the 1870s. Um, but they they sort of um, made up in in a way, or they they tried to uh, provide a, a legal meaning to a term that had been used in political discourse, creating this term nationality to refer to refer to regions. I think by and large, in this this happened in nineteen seventies, and between nineteen seventies and and up until today, this strategic ambiguity in in the the question about the number of nations worked out reasonably well so you know the country more or less progressed the country more or less democratized the country had many issues but they found a way of modeling through them uh, but in the 2010s we we in the context of economic crisis we faced a profound um, uh, confrontation between the spanish government in madrid and catalan authorities in catalonia to the point in Barcelona, and to the point that uh, it looked as if Catalonia was going to break apart in 2017. Uh, someone looking from the outside might have got the impression that the, the conflict between Madrid and Barcelona was permanent in Spanish politics, but that is far, far from the, from the truth. The truth is that for most of the history, there has been a, some sort of a, Again, ambiguous and clear strategic uh, understanding between between uh, rulers in one place and the other, and the uh, mismatch of interest uh, was a was a historical contention contingent feature, but it was not <laughs> defining feature. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So I, I, could I ask you something from a comparative perspective now? Mm-hmm. And especially since you're in the UK, um, you know, so some people have called... Um, 
you know, Britain, a nation of nations. That's what Great Britain is, you know, the Union of Scotland and England and and then Wales and Northern Ireland. Um, so in, in what way uh, is, uh, is the Spanish situation uh, different or similar? I, I suppose, you know, um, I mean, there, there's strong Scots nationalism, I suppose, Welsh, a little weaker in, in my understanding. And then, uh, you know, the, the Northern Ireland situation is, is more extreme than, than either um, Scotland or Wales. Um, and so, so you have that sort of dynamic in Great Britain. Um, how do you compare that to the Spanish situation? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an interesting comparison. It's a, it's, it, it comes to mind quite, quite quickly. I think, the, I think the, there are some similarities, some differences as well. I think the main difference is that the UK is constructed on the idea that it's a union of several nations. And, you know, conservative politicians in the UK or in England will not deny that Scotland is a nation. Some of them might do, uh, but I think by and large, the average voter and polls seem to suggest this, the average voter, even conservative voter in England, will recognise that Scotland is a nation and that Wales is a nation and that Ireland is a nation, a portion of which belongs or is part of the United Kingdom. Um, But the premise of recognition of a nation is there. While in the case of Spain, that that is not the case. Um, and I'm not saying that Spaniards should, uh, you know, apply the yardstick of Britain. <laughs> you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the time is gone. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they, they could do it. They could choose to do it. But I think the premise of recognizing that each one of the nationalities is a nation is something that is not accepted by most people in Spain. I, I think this, this goes back to, I, you, you had made a, a point in, uh, in your book about, you know, the story uh, you know, that nations like people have stories, you know, which I totally agree with. That's the approach I, I take as well. Um, and, and that, so the story of, of the union in Great Britain, you know, was, you know, the, the, the kingdoms, you know, signing a treaty. And then, you know, you, you have, you know, the, the, the successor, well, well, the prince, you know, the, the, the second in line or, or the, the second, you know, in, in the lineage, however you call it in the monarchy, is the Prince of Wales, you know, so it's a way they, they developed in, in their process of, of, of unification. They, they developed their things between the, the monarchs or uh, the regents in, in the various uh, territories. Whereas in, in Spain, it was, I guess, different. They, they have a, a, a different story. Is it, is that what it might boil down to, or, or it's, what? It's a, it's 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 a it's a different story. Yes, I I would say the union of the different kingdoms is a product of the uh, of the Catholic monarchs of the late fifteenth, early sixteenth century. Um, but the extent to which the different kingdoms, the, the, or let me put it differently, the extent to which that union of different kingdoms under a single monarch or a single couple in in, in the throne meant mm-hmm. that the different regions lost power, that is much, much, much less certain. So it's true that there was a single monarch from early fifteenth early 16th century, um, but did, that didn't mean the regions lost power. Um, so, for example, one of the key, the same way that for right-wing commentators in Spain, uh, you know, late 1492 is a key date in their mindset, 
um, mm-hmm. the, because of Columbus and because of Granada, the the, the, the expel of the Moors of, from Granada and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like just like for them, 1492 is a key date for uh, Catalan pro-independence movement. The key date is 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 1714, and 1714. In fact, if you if you for for those who are listening and are interested in in football in soccer, um, they may know that uh, uh, at least up until a few a few rec- a few years ago before before COVID in in No Camp the football stadium of of Barca football, of Barcelona football team in the minute seventeen second fourteen. Uh, people used to chant independence, independence, independence. <laughs> and the reason was that 1714 is the year when um, when uh, uh, the, the, uh, the region of Catalonia lost the powers. There was a decree from Madrid uh, after mm. a civil war in the early 18th century by which Spain, um, the Spanish monarch, Accumulated a lot of power that had of, on, on several on several policy issues that up until that point had been ruled over at the level of the of the Catalan uh, of the Catalan region. So for them, it's considered as a as an as a plundering of, of, of resources and plundering of, of of the of the power to decide on self determination. And in the Basque Country, that key historical date is fifteen twelve, which is the date when uh, Ferdinand the King Ferdinand. Um, Depending on the historical you read, you could you could say that reach an agreement with with Navarrese uh, nobles or invaded Navarra. It depends on your take on the matter. But the truth is that the kingdom of Navarra was uh, absorbed by the by the by, by by Ferdinand, and that's the year when the kingdom of Navarra disappeared in the early 16th century. For a lot of pro-independence people in the Basque Country, that is the key. That is the key date. Each one, each you know, each its ideologue will have their own, uh, you know, rev- historical revisionism to resort to. Mm-hmm. But um, what about? Um, I mean, we've we've spoken a lot about the you know the the idea of the nation of nations and and a little bit about uh, Franco, not not that much mm-hmm. in in this discussion here. But uh, I don't think we've really touched on on the, the welfare state or mm-hmm. the the structural underdevelopment or the Catholic Church that much. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you want to elaborate briefly on it? Yes, of course. Uh, but, I mean, I mean, quickly on the on the on, on Franco and the twentieth century and how we how we tell the story of the twentieth century. Um, I mean, Franco was a, a, a brutal dictatorship between the thirties, late thirties, until nineteen seventy five. And but he he died in bed. He died he died because he was too old, and he died in power. And uh, but uh, after his death, Spain Spain uh, had to become a democracy of, of some sort. Um, the question was what sort of democracy and how it was going to get there. Um, one of the means by which um, the powerful at the time, the, the rulers uh, that followed Franco, accepted a transition to democracy was through a pact of silence, uh, an amnesty act. And the amnesty act was adopted in 1977. Uh, the truth is that it was adopted with wide support from population and support not only from those who supported the regime, but also from those who supported the opposition. So the people who had been persecuted on the left and people who were uh, claiming independence or self-determination for the Basque Country and Catalonia were also demanding uh, amnesty. Um, but over time, this happened in the in 1977 and 78, and and as as you know, without drawing careful, dangerous parallels with Germany, but the same way that Germany needed about 20 or 25 years after after the Reich to reflect mm-hmm. about uh, you know the 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 brutal Holocaust and the killings. 
Uh, Spanish society went through a similar process of atonement for about 20, 25 years of silence between late 70s and, and uh, early 2000s. And it was then when a new generation of Spaniards and, and politicians um, started to reflect about, uh, you know, the, the, the brutality of the regime and the people who had been killed, the people who had been tortured with no accountability whatsoever. And there was a new generation of people in the last 20 years who demanded and reflection and, and critical take on the way in which the, the, the dictatorship had affected Spanish politics. Not only the dictatorship, but the silence that followed the dictatorship, the pact of silence that followed the dictatorship, had impacted the way in which Spanish institutions had been built, had impacted the judiciary, had impacted the conservative um, uh, party had impacted uh, the the Catholic Church and the power of the Catholic Church and and so on. So uh, it also had implications for for the for terrorism in the Basque Country, the region where I'm from, um, because the narrative of ETA, the armed group that was in place between 1960s and up until 2011, 2011, the narrative of that armed group was that they were fighting against a dictatorship. They were fighting against Franco, and when Franco died, Spain did not become a democracy. So the way Spaniards were kept silent about the dictatorship after Franco, in a way, legitimized this arms group as well mm. and, and their and their claims. Um, I'm, I'm happy to, to to talk some more about it, but if, if if you don't mind, I can also mention the third issue of the, of the book, sure. which is the issue of the welfare state. Mm-hmm. Um, because Spain was a dictatorship between the 30s and the 70s. And it was a right-wing dictatorship uh, that initially sided with Heller and Mussolini in World War II and later on uh, followed, uh, became kind of a, a beacon of anti-communism for the U.S. in, in Western Europe. Um, there was the, the, the 30, the 30 Glorieuse that they call in Europe, the, the 30 years of development of welfare state did not mm-hmm. trickle down in Spain. There was no egalitarian policies the way that all the countries in Western Europe implemented in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, by the time um, um, Spain became a democracy in the late 70s, all the countries were flirting with neoliberal policies, as they did in the late 70s and early 80s. So Spain mm-hmm. became a democracy when the others were sort of getting tired of the Trente Glorieuse, in a way. So Spain mm-hmm. was kind of lagging behind, 30 years behind. And it never caught up. It never caught up with the level of public investment on, on, on welfare state and housing. Let me give you an example. Housing is, a, is, is, is one of the two, two and within welfare state, I explore two issues, in particular social assistance and housing. But housing is a very telling one. Um, um, in 1979, when Margaret Thatcher was uh, elected prime minister in the UK, one in three houses in the UK was social housing units. So one in three people, more or less, in Britain grew up in a, camp, in a house that was publicly owned and was affordable and has social purpose. Currently, 40 years later, it's one in six. So it means it's half of the number of, of houses that there were uh, 40 years ago. It's a significant drop. Mm-hmm. However, if we compare with Spain, it is one in 100. Right. Why? Not because there was no public investment on social housing, but rather because the state privatized uh, uh, the social housing units, building houses that were sold at a at a cheap price, and then people could uh, um, access, but later on could be uh, sold at a higher price after a certain number of years. So people could uh, access not only housing but the property of a house, of a of a flat, of an apartment, of a house, 
And then sometime later, there could be speculation over the value of that house. And that was done with the use of public money. It, it was implemented by um, the first Minister of Housing in 1959 with Franco. And it was a policy that remained in place up until today. So these so they were neoliberal before the neoliberals. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I mean, Margaret is, is, a, it is an expression uh, that used by the first minister of housing in 1959 in an article that he wrote in, in ABC, which was the main conservative newspaper at the time. It still is, actually. And he said that we're going to try to make, uh, in Spanish he said, uh, no, we want Propietarios, no proletarios. So proletario right. being a, a, a homeowner. Exactly. So yeah. we want property owners, we don't want proletariat. And yeah. it's the same philosophy that inspired Margaret Thatcher 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, you know, I think we need to bear these structural conditions in mind when we uh, assess the promises of a left-wing uh, government like the one that is in place at the moment and the promises by Podemos when they came when, when they emerged in 2014. Yeah, that, that sounds like a fascinating paper, the the, the influence of Franco on um, Thatcher's <laughs> policy. <laughs> yeah, should we scroll further? Yes. <laughs> and then finally is, is the Catholic Church. The fourth issue is the one of the extraordinary influence of the Catholic Church on conservative thinking. One stereotype we might have of Spain is that it is a, a, a maybe more so in the past than these days, but a very cons- a very uh, Catholic and religious society. That's one of the views that people might have had in the past about about Spain. And and if we have that premise, that cliche in mind, one might be surprised that Spain is also the, you know, it was one of the first countries to recognize uh, uh, equal marriage in 2004. Uh, it, it, you know, it recognized uh, divorce and, and abortion in the 1980s, uh, earlier than many other Catholic majority countries. Um, and he recognized assisted dying uh, last year, uh, which is also something the Catholic Church stands against. Uh, so one might be surprised why uh, mm-hmm. why this is the case, why Spain was the third country in the world to recognize equal marriage, the first country in the world to recognize uh, adoption by gay couples. Uh, isn't that counterintuitive? And I think it has to do yes. with I think it has to do with 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 the with the way in which the Catholic Church since the late 19th century clearly sided with conservative politics. They made a strategic choice to look for uh, comfort, to look for support uh, with uh, the right uh, of conservative of of the political spectrum, and and not the left. And this meant that when we got to the 1930s, the first experience of democracy, one of the features of that Republican experience in the 1930s was uh, was the anti, uh, anti-Catholic, anti-Church sentiment on the left. There was mm-hmm. a strong Catholic sentiment on the right, and there was an anti-clerical sentiment on the left. That division, thankfully, is not so stark these days, Otherwise, it it would be unbearable. Um, but the influence of the Catholic Church on conservative uh, politics and conservative thinking is still today much more prominent than the influence that it has on people who side on the left hand side of, of politics. I, and while I'm not an expert on on Italy, for example, I think this is an important difference with 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 Italian society, where the church seems to permeate society much more uh, than in the case of Spain, where where it is very, very clearly visible on this right-hand side of politics mm-hmm. and actually very the opposite on the left-hand side of politics.
I'm probably very different from Latin America, where the Catholic Church was, uh, you know, with the FMLN and <laughs> at also, least yeah, certain indeed. sections. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's yes, true. Yeah. The, the political choices they made, the church and the the, the theology of liberation, and and, and a lot of uh, grassroots grassroots uh, uh, priests made in, in Latin America is very different from the one that Spanish hierarchy and the church made. I think it's interesting these days. It not, I should say not not always. You know, the the Spanish church. Particularly the the priest and the the you know the popular working priest of the late 60s and early 70s were instrumental in bringing about a change to Spanish society and to democratize Spain. But I mean the hierarchy of the church, the top of the church, uh, sided sided with the right. And in this day and age, it's interesting to see uh, the the influence that uh, Pope uh, Francis has on this, because obviously Pope Francis. Uh, is not a conservative pope uh, for for church mm-hmm. standards at least, and and uh, them, 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 he has been uh, openly criticised by conservative politicians in Spain simply for meeting with the leader of uh, of Podemos, the left wing party, uh, in in mm. in in December twenty twenty one. They 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 seem to see uh, in Pope Francis an enemy. Uh, which is is quite uh, ironic, considering the the, the close uh, the close partnership between Catholic Church and conservative politicians in in the last one hundred and fifty years. Interesting. So, uh, I, I guess I'm moving to to close. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot in terms of you know looking into your crystal ball. You know, there's always dangers with predictions. But uh, you know, in, in terms of Spanish politics, um, you know. Uh, Looking, looking ahead at, at you know, or, or even at the present, you know what the, you know what the main issues are. Um, let you know, even I, I mean, because you do mention it in your book, um, COVID nineteen, and with this, the welfare state in particular, um, you know, re, restructuring society post COVID, and and that you know, understanding these these things, that particular Achilles seal in particular is is very important. Um, how, how how do you see these issues, these Achilles heels that you've uh, described? Um, uh, you know, what what might be some of the most important things uh, looking forward in in terms of the way they they might impact Spanish mm-hmm. politics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's an important it's an important question to to think about in this in these days with COVID nineteen and so many challenges we are facing. Um, the mm-hmm. first thought I the first thought I, I have is that I I don't think um, Achilles heels are necessarily weaknesses, although I I know I am I'm calling them the strong foundations of a country's weaknesses, but they are so they are weakness if we ignore them, if we don't tackle them, if we don't learn from them. Um, so the, the the title of the last uh, of the last chapter of the book is vulnerabilities need not be weaknesses. So mm-hmm. the four issues I cover in the book and indeed others are structural vulnerabilities. But I think if one can turn them around and learn from them and strengthen the foundations of of, uh, of our society. So it very much depends on whether Achilles heels in Spain become vulnerabilities or become or become weaknesses that we try to ignore. There are a number of problems in contemporary Spanish politics that are not at all unique to Spain. And indeed, other countries around Spain are facing similar issues, issues such as polarization and demagoguery and, and right-wing populism and uh, in, 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 in public debate. I think, I think polarization and how we 
um, seem to to be to pretend to be far apart from one another is 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 happening in Spanish politics, but it's, it's happening elsewhere as well. I I, I think there uh, another issue that is not at all unique to Spain, but is 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 defining of the current political moment is is public investment and what sort of uh, lessons we're going to draw from a decade of austerity in the 2010s and also two years of pandemic. Are we going to invest uh, with public resources in, in public protection? Are we going to invest? Are we going to draw the conclusion that we need to look after the most vulnerable in society? We need to acknowledge that all of us might be in need of collective support at one point or another. Or are we, trying to, are we going to go for a much more individualistic uh, and uh, approach to politics with less involvement of the state. And it's a question. It's an open question for Spain. It's an open question for Europe as a whole. And obviously, climate change and what it means for 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 future generations. I mean, we need to bear in mind that Spain is likely to be one of the countries that is most affected by climate change in the short term, uh, given its geographical location and the and the heat of the country. Uh, all countries face their own problems, but certainly Spain is going to suffer the consequences earlier than the UK. And and I think it is even more urgent for Spain to 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 prioritize this. But these are these are features that apply to to many countries. There are some of the things that are perhaps more particular of Spain. One of them is the the rise of the far right um, in the last two to three years. I know this is also the case in other European countries. Uh, we we see the elections coming up in in, in France. In, in, in a few months, uh, with two candidates, strong candidates on the far right. And we also see the rise of, of far right in other countries. I think what is different for Spain is that it has been a much more sudden phenomenon. Up until 2019, the far right was out of parliament, and now it is 15% of the electorate. If there were elections, it could be more than 15%. So it's a very rapid uh, uh, growing movement, and it has reminiscence of Francoism as well. Uh, other countries do not know what a dictatorship is like. Uh, Spain does, and it's in living memory. And, uh, right. and the far right has connections with that. And obviously, uh, and another issue is how we deal with the question of the nation and the nations um, is a very difficult question. Um, one way of dealing with a difficult question is to try to answer it. Another way of dealing with a difficult question is to try to change the question. And one of the challenges we have, one of the one of the opportunities as well, is to see whether it is possible not to put the question of the nation so prominent in political debates as compared with what we did in the 2010s. And and another one that is goes unnoticed, perhaps for a for an external observer, is the future of the monarchy. The mm. monarchy is uh, highly discredited, particularly the current king's father. King Juan Carlos who was instrumental in the democratization of the country in the 70s. He, uh, at the personal level, he made very poor choices and scandals of corruption and so on. And I think that has had a negative effect on the institution as a whole. And whether the fu future generations will be willing to sustain a monarch, a head of a state that is not elected by the people remains to be seen. Yeah. Okay. You know, I, you, you talked about... Um you know, these, these problems, you know, that are going to be faced by Spain uh, or that are being faced are, are not peculiar. They're universal in many ways. And I think that ties, ties into the beginning when we were talking about that. Yes, although we, um, we may be experiencing, you know, all the, you know, universal problems, same problem, but 
each of us experiences it in very particular ways. And I think that's what um, I, I get out of, of your analysis is, is to understand the, the very particular ways that, um, that Spain, um, you know, uh, that these problems may manifest itself in, in Spain or, or be mediated or the way universal problems are mediated by Spanish experience and, and, and culture and politics. That's very interesting. Uh, um, are we? Are you working on any uh, projects right now that you'd like our audience to know about? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm working on a couple of projects. Um, uh, one of them is in in in, in partnership with um, colleagues from Chile and colleagues from other countries, but in particular from Chile. Uh, I I uh, I am leading on a on a research project that is looking at uh, how Chile may recognize social rights in their constitution. Um, so Chile is one is the only country in Latin America that has a constitution from the from the time of the dictatorship, is the 1980 constitution, and uh, after, since 19, 2019 they are going through a process of constitutional reform. In 2022 they may have a new constitution that recognizes social rights. So we are looking at uh, what lessons Chile can learn from other countries that have recognized social rights in the constitution. What uh, Promises can be kept. What uh, promises? What expectations have to be managed? Uh, with a book coming up with Hearts uh, in 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 mid twenty twenty two, looking at Chile and lessons from comparative experiences. And another project I have uh, is focusing on on one of the vulnerabilities uh, of the book, precisely the issue of the welfare state and mm. the future of uh, public protection and welfare, uh, the possibilities for social rights. And the relationship between private property and, and and the recognition of social rights in Spain, but indeed in other countries as well. Oh, that's very interesting, you know. And and when you make that link with Chile, and after our discussion, it it really brought uh, to mind the question: I wonder how much these vulnerabilities you're talking about in Spain has affected political development in Latin America. You know that 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 uh, my, I I never really thought of that before, but yeah, I mean, you know, the the the, the caudillos and and mm. and all the dictators in Latin America, you know, maybe they, you know, I I never thought of it really, but maybe they were looking to Franco, maybe you know, that that would have been, um, uh, you know, just assumed naturally assumed by by most um, Spanish speakers, but. Uh, you know, as an outsider, I I never really made that uh, connection. But yes, there the, the may be, and then there may be uh, all sorts of other things that you identify there as well. So that that sounds very interesting. For better and for worse, right? Because also yes. the liberal movement of the early nineteenth century in Spain, the drafters of the of the Constitution of eighteen twelve, inspired a liberal a liberal movement of a movement of liberation in what were back then the colonies in Latin America. And yeah. many of them achieved independence soon after uh, that liberal movement in Spain that energized a lot of people to claim the same sort of rights that liberals in Spain wanted for wanted for them. Excellent, excellent. Well, I want to thank you so much for this interview. It's been really informative and enjoyable. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. So once again, the book is Spain and its Achilles Heels. The Strong Foundations of a Country's Weaknesses. And we've been speaking to the author, Caldo Casla. It's been a pleasure. Now, I want to thank you, our listeners, as well. Make sure that you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in the future. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.